Before we begin today's show, I'd like to say a big thank you to today's sponsor, Kiehl's. As an award-winning skincare brand that was founded in 1851, Kiehl's is scientifically formulated to respect, restore, and strengthen the skin. Kiehl's and I are also on similar missions within the LGBTQ community. I love that the brand has just announced a partnership with Just Like Us, a leading LGBTQ charity that supports young people in the UK by eliminating homophobic, biphobic, and transphobic bullying in schools, which is so incredibly important. Head to keels.co.uk to find out more about this brilliant initiative, as well as their amazing products. I know what gratitude feels like. I know what joy is. I know what love is. I know what family is. I don't think I would have known that as intensely if I hadn't had my injury. And they are the core joys of life. I mean, I know sadness, I know tragedy, and I know pain, but you can't have one without the other. I do love having both. Our guest this week is the fantastic Sophie Morgan, presenter, artist, award-winning disability advocate, and social entrepreneur, who, as she'll go on to tell us later, was paralyzed in a car crash when she was just 18 years old. Determined to challenge her adversity into opportunity, she sees her challenges as a unique chance for creativity and to break apart any and all pigeonholes people expect her to sit in as a disabled woman. Boy, does she smash them. You might know her from live Paralympic events on Channel 4, something she says have created the greatest awareness and change for people with disabilities, as well as hard-hitting current affair programmes such as Dispatches and Unreported World, and she continues to lead the charge to better representation for disabled people with a creative flair and a vivaciousness that is infectious. Her tattoos are bold and fantastic, large, elaborate, and colorful murals on her back of an intricate mandala to the bold mermaid on her back that commemorates her inner self, which in turn loops around and connects to a gorgeous Frida Kahlo tattoo, also designed by Sophie that inspires her and is the face she wants to put forward in life. In a way, she's a bit of a protection symbol, but also a sort of reminder to myself, every time I look at her, what would Frida do? That kind of question, she's, she's really inspiring for me. So, so that's why she's so visible to me right there. She might as well be in my hand, you know, she's right on my leg, right where I see every day. And so I like that kind of playing with the positioning of tattoos and that, yeah, that's why I keep her, keep her in my eye line. Sophie and I spoke a lot about the positioning of tattoos, what the significance of their positioning is, and I didn't get around to it in the interview, but I thought I'd share with you guys a story about a tattoo whose positioning is very important to me. So I have a tattoo on my stomach that I suppose doesn't represent my sporting career, but it represents a moment in time of my sporting career when I had probably what was my one of many injuries, but probably my worst injury was when I had a carotid artery in, in my neck. Now, you have two main arteries in your neck that run blood supply to your vein. And you can live without one, but you can't live without both. So in one rugby match playing in France, I got punched in the face and my neck got twisted. I got concussed and I kind of carried on as, as normal. But then about three weeks later, I was sitting in the house and I had a stroke because I didn't realise that in the tilt of my neck, the artery had been bruised. And having strained and pressurised it for the continuing three weeks, the artery couldn't take anymore, and it collapsed, so it stopped sending blood 
to my brain, which gave me a big stroke. And my whole left side kind of went all numb. I woke up in the hospital on an ECG. I was about 27 years of age, waking up in an ECG. And the doctor came around me and said, basically, you've had a mini stroke. And my first question to him was, will I ever be able to play rugby again? And he said, look, you've got one artery left. The chances of losing that artery are the same chances of losing an artery in the first place, which are very unlikely. But if you do lose that other artery, then basically you'll die. So I decided to take sport back up, but I had to be very careful and do nothing for six months. So I did that kind of a lot of thinking and that. I went a lot of praying. And then when I started playing rugby again, what I decided to do was on my stomach, I decided to tattoo a pair of praying hands. Now, the point of the hands was point the top of the finger of the hands towards the good artery I had left. Because what I wanted to constantly be doing was praying whilst playing that this artery would survive and nothing would go wrong as it did in the first place. So I was kind of praying for my life constantly. So that, that tattoo on my stomach was a way of constantly asking as I did over the six months, that I'd be okay when I play again. And then whilst I'm playing, I was constantly praying and asking for that. What I loved about Sophie is that she totally embodies her values, daring to be different. She's always finding a creative opportunity in adversity and proves the value and power of true disability representation in all areas of her work and her life. And those are just a few of the reasons that Soph has been voted to be in the top 10 most influential people with a disability in the UK. In true 2020 style, we had some tech issues and had to move around a bit to get the audio sounding clear. But if you hear any glitches, then that's why. Apart from a brief cameo from my dog Boyo, who is desperate for a walk. But hey, that's the beauty of living and working from home. This is our last episode for 2020. And I honestly couldn't think of a better person to finish this season with. So I let Sophie tell you for herself. I'm your host, Gareth Thomas, and welcome to Skin Deep. Okay, let's finally roll, Soph. So thanks for coming on on what is the final episode of Skin Deep. I think where I want to start with you, if that's okay, Sophie, is I think I and so many people know you now as like an award-winning disability advocate, like social entrepreneur who does, as far as I'm concerned, I'm sure so many people will agree with me, really important, inspirational work. So if we go back to prior, like describe who Sophie Morgan was like at the age of 16 to say 18. It's lovely to chat to you, Gareth. Thanks, thanks for having me on. I, to put it sort of to summarise, I'd say I was trouble. I was a real wild child. I was quite rebellious was pretty difficult to sort of tame I'd been expelled from one school I was in another I was quite kind of I suppose I look back on it and I think I was just a naughty kid but I was quite selfish I think I was quite kind of self-motivated and to just sort of have fun do what I wanted be a bit wild I mean I worked hard but I partied hard I was a little little naughty thing so I did my A-levels and then I went to get my results in the summer And the night I got my results, I crashed my car when I was driving home. And that's when I got paralysed. And looking back on it, it's almost like it could have been a bit predictable. I was that kind of character. I was quite, I pushed it. I pushed everything. I was really quite, I guess, 
I wasn't able to see the sort of the character type that I had that it could lead me to trouble. I don't think I was quite kind of, you know, I was a kid though. So I think in many ways it's hard for me to know what kind of person I would have been because I was only 18, but that, that kind of girl, that sort of belligerent and sort of fun loving person that I was, I still am today, but I guess it's hard to say what I would have been like if I hadn't had my injury at that point. So did you feel like you were somebody who lived in the moment? Not really, not really too concerned about consequences of actions yes. because you yes. felt kind of invincible. Oh gosh, yes. I mean, it was one of them. I, I guess I thought life was one big experiment of how much I could get away with. You know, how much fun can I have? How much can I push this? I think a lot of kids are like that. The friends that I've got, my pals, people I gravitate to, I think are a bit like that. So I don't think I was unique in that way of behaving. It was just an 18-year-old girl who's pushing the boundaries. But yeah, definitely, definitely trouble <laughs> with a capital T. <laughs> well, so if, I think just, just the, the listeners of Skin Deep, if you, can, if you can, if you don't mind, kind of talk us through the night of the accident and kind of how that ended up with you being in a wheelchair, like the severity of the accident. So when I was, yeah, I was 18 years old and I just picked up my A-level results. It was the summer of 2003 and I'd gone to a party with some friends to celebrate the end of school and the end of that chapter, really, of the chapter of childhood in a way. And basically I was driving home that night from the party and I lost control of the car I was driving. I was sober and I was seat belted, but I was just really inexperienced. I'd only had my license a few months and basically my car was full of my friends and they were all pissed and dancing and having fun. And I just, it was a bit of a recipe for disaster, really. I crashed the car, lost control of the steering, crashed the car into the into a field. And in the crash, my spine was momentarily sort of twisted and the twist was enough to cause the spinal injury that paralyzed me completely from my breasts down basically from just below bottom of my chest down so I was paralyzed instantly pretty much um taken into hospital locally and then once my injuries the surface I had a lot of facial injuries as well and once all that kind of got tidied up I was then flown down to London where I went to the spinal unit and, and was rehabilitated there but yeah ever since then 18 years ago I've, I've been a full-time manual chair user so yeah a huge huge pivotal moment really and in a way kind of strange to end my childhood as an able-bodied person and then move into my adult life as a non-able person so it's yeah it's been a been a journey <laughs> I think I think what's really powerful for me so when you tell, say that and I know like I try to describe as much to the listeners skin deep as possible visually because this is about tattoos yes but also it's about people telling telling the stories behind kind of their ventures into into why tattooing means so much is that when you tell me what is obviously you know verging on a tragic terrible story you say it with a smile on your face, <laughs> say it with us you say it with a, a sense of joy. So I'm wondering when when you was like. I, that that smile has come over time of being able to deal with it, I'm sure. But how did you feel when you woke up or when you was first told as an 18-year-old that the chances are or the definite is that you're going to spend the rest of your life disabled from the chest down and you're going to be in a wheelchair? How do you, as this fun-loving, outgoing, vivacious youngster without a care in the world, transform pretty quickly into dealing with that kind of news? Oh, it, it's been a... It's been an ongoing thing. So there's a, there's a real kind of, I think, perhaps 
misleading perception that people think that I guess you could overcome your disability. There's a lot of sort of the stories about people overcoming and defying and, and battling with their, their disability and overcoming it. I feel very differently about that. I feel that my adjustment and acceptance to my disability is, is ongoing, even to this day, even 18 years later, there's still things I'm coming to terms with. So when I first had my injury and I got to understand the extent of what had happened and how the, my body had been completely changed. I'd lost all the movement and all of the sensation in my body. So first of all, it became very much a focus on, right, what can I still do? I might not be able to do the things that I used to do, but what am I still able to do? So that was a journey of discovery. But then it soon became quite obvious that regardless of what I thought I could do, I had to deal with other people's perceptions of what I thought I could do, because many people think that if you're a paraplegic or a disabled person, a wheelchair user, there's certain limits within which you can live. And I, at first, agreed with those limits. I was like, right, these are things I can't do, these things I can do. But actually, over time, I've learned that there's a lot of boundary breaking to be done from my own self-limiting beliefs and other people's. And it's in that barrier breaking that I find the joy in my life, that I really love mucking around with people's ideas of what I should be able to do or not be able to do. And it's been one long like journey, I guess. But like I say, it's still ongoing. There's still things now that I'm still kind of grappling with, you know, how, what's it like to be a disabled woman and what's it like to be a disabled person? It's living with an impairment as complicated as a spinal injury. It's, it's ongoing. So initially it was, it was daunting. That's got less so, but yeah, it's, it's such a privilege to live like this because you're kind of constantly reminded of the, the sort of fragility of life, the vulnerability of your body, but also the gratitude and the joy that you feel for knowing those extremes. It's just, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating place to, to live a life in a are disabled you, body. Are you, because I, I find when, you, when you're confronted by things or when you feel like you have kind of a, another opportunity at life, you, you don't become selfish about that, actually you become very non-selfish and you become aware of other people like that. And I wonder, so a lot, a lot of things that I strive for and I fight for is because I felt I overcame challenges and I want to help other people overcome challenges. And I wondered sometimes, like where did my ability to be able to be this person of strength come from? And I look at the people close to me, for instance, I look at my parents and I realize that actually I've, I've learned this behavior through my parents. This isn't something that I've just naturally nurtured and grown. It's been taught by me because for somebody like yourself, then becoming very reliant on other people, there's nobody closer than your, your parents. So all of a sudden, maybe everybody else's life around you changes. So did you find strength and did you find it difficult to kind of then start to rely on your parents as well? It's a really, really valid question, Gareth. You know so well. I, for me, definitely, at that age, my greatest sort of support network became my mum and my dad, my brother and my friends. And I would not, categorically, hands down, hand on my heart, would not be here if it wasn't for those people. For the learnt behaviour that I had as a kid, like you say, how to be selfless, how to love, how to love and how to be there for other people. I think actually in many ways, that's kind of what got me through it is because I, because I didn't want to see them sad. I didn't want them to be upset and miserable by what happened to me. I had to look after them. And in so doing kind of looked after myself, you know, for them to be okay, I had to be okay. So I, it's that kind of selfish, selfless balance of, 
I need to make sure that they don't cry anymore and they're not sad. So I need to look after myself and make sure that we all look after each other. There was a lot of that going on, codependency. And whilst that's not always helpful all the time, for me, that was a lifesaver, you know, just to have someone to care for and and then in turn, look after other people, strangers. And like you, your motivation still, that kind of, right, how I've been so lucky and been helped so much, how can I help other people? And that's where the advocacy work really comes in. I don't feel like I ever had a choice in that. You know, I just... I, I had to help other people. I had to speak about what had happened to me, just like you have, tell your own story to show people that what is, what's possible, but always within the context of, yes, I've had the most incredible support network and I know how privileged I am. So it's not a case like I can do it, you can do it. I don't believe that. I think it's like, I can do it. What, what, how have I been able to do it? Can I, can I help other people find that, that way through their own adversity as well? So, yeah. Definitely. My parents are my lifesavers. So when, when you talk about ways of, of, of helping yourself through, I feel like that's kind of an, a great opening, I feel, for me to then move on to what kind of this is really about. And that's tattooing because the, the parts, and I don't like to read too much about, about people, but the, the, the stories I've read so far about your tattooing, it almost seems that there's a process um, of healing that you get from them. So was your first tattoo post the accident? And if, if, if it was kind of, what was it? Cause you all, as we go through your tattoos, I think to, to sort of listeners understand is your tattoos are bold. They are bold statements. So was your first tattoo kind of a, a, a bold statement or did you dip your toe in the water with something kind of, you know, little cartoon character somewhere on your body that you thought you'd try yeah absolutely oh I just this is such a joy to have the chance to talk to you about I've never actually spoken about this before with anybody so my first tattoo after my crash was the, the tiniest tiniest but most precious tattoo I've ever got it's four dots on my finger four tiny little dots uh, that run on the inside of my finger and it's it was to represent my best friends there's four of us and those girls that came around and looked after me when I first had my impairment and honestly Gareth these girls they're gold dust they would like carry me to clubs and help me move around and pick me up when I'd fallen over make me laugh when I needed to they were just rocks they were the best friends in the world. And so we got these little tattoos for, um, they got them on their feet and I got them on my hand. So it was a tiny, tiny tattoo. And for years I then didn't get another. I was very sure I wanted to, but I was really specific about what I wanted to get. Anyway, when I was about 21 for my birthday present, I decided me and my mom were going to get the date of my injury tattooed on us. And I don't know what convinced her. She so brave of her, but we went and got this tattoo together and it was awful. It was such a bad tattoo. It was so ugly. We got it at that tramp, spa- tramp stamp spot at the bottom of your back, which is just so <laughs> funny. And if you know my mum, it's the funniest idea for her to get a tattoo. She's, she's a very beautiful, glamorous woman. So it was really fun. But I have to say, it kind of opened a bit of a door for me. I was like, right, I really want to get into designing my own tattoos because I'm an artist. Anyway, I spent the next four, maybe five years, slowly plodding away at a drawing that I wanted to get up for my 10 year of my anniversary. I really wanted to mark that occasion. And I've got a very long scar down the top of my back, which is where metal rods have been installed into my spine after my spinal injury. And I wanted to decorate that scar. 
So I spent a long time trying to draw this tattoo, Gareth. Like I, I, I thought back and forth, back and forth, and it ended up being quite a sort of symbolic one for me. It's a mandala, and at the top, it's got kind of broken down into the seasons, and out of those seasons are little symbols for me that all mean something. So I feel very much like I'm now in the, I guess, the summer of my life. I, my, when I had my injury, I was in the spring, and I kind of hopefully we'll make it through to winter but who knows what happens in life and there's a sort of I really wanted to celebrate what had happened to me in my life so far so I got this idea but I was really specific about who I wanted to tattoo me I really wanted it to be someone I loved and respected and there was a woman I'd found online and I just fell in love with her work her name's Syra Hunjan she's a beautiful tattoo artist very Indian henna sort of very uh, beautiful detail very intricate tattoos I, I love them but I couldn't get hold of her Gareth she wouldn't she was a waiting list you know for years <laughs> yeah. I get that. you know the deal anyway I I was at college studying and this girl was in my class and one day she flashed these tattoos and I nearly fell over I said you've got Sarah Hunjan tattoos they're very distinctive oh okay right and she said yeah yeah I do my whole body's covered in them and I said, no, you, you, you don't happen to be friends with her, do you? And she said, yeah, we're great friends. I said, I've been looking for trying to get tattooed by her for about five years. Would you put in a word for me? She said, of course I will. And Syra, bless her, called me up and said, of course I'll see you. Of course I'll see you and I'll do it. And so I got to see her at her home and she tattooed me. And it was the most painful thing I've ever had in my life because I'm paralyzed from halfway down my back. And the, I didn't know this, but where the tattoo sits, the nerve endings out of this, I can't even describe it. They are so sensitive. And so when she started tattooing around the scar, parts of it I couldn't feel at all. Couldn't feel the needle. It was like, crack on, go for it. Just do what you like. I can't yeah. feel it. But then as the needle started to come up above my back, I it was like she was drilling into my brain. It oh. was the most agonizing pain. But then it would shift up towards the top of my back and it was, it was less painful. So this it was a real process. I, I mean... I have to say it was probably the most painful thing I've ever been through, but that was yeah. the start. So I did that at the top of my back with her and then the floodgates opened. I was like, right, I'm getting more, I'm getting more, I'm getting more. But did they find it, did you find like almost like an, did you find it almost like an addiction to this kind of artwork you wanted to show or like, like a, I think a few people I've spoken to and been honored to speak to on this. It, it, did you find it maybe a version of addiction of maybe taking back some kind of control? Without a question. I think for me, because my body below my injury, I can't activate the muscles. I can't connect with it. It's, it's given me a way of celebrating it, decorating it. I think there's an element of a bit of a fuck you to my body because I can't feel it. I'm like, well, I can cover it up and I, I can tattoo it. I can, it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's a really psychological kind of game, I think, tattooing. I know a lot of people think that it's a form of... Some people think it's a form of self-harm. I don't think of it that way. I think of it as a case of I, I have this body that's still with me, even though I can't speak to it. I can't communicate with it. It doesn't talk back. It drives me crazy. So I'm either going to celebrate it and make it beautiful. And at times, it, you know, it's kind of a feel like, well, can't feel it, just keep going. So I'm honestly, I think there's a lot going on for me with tattoos, but I just, yeah, I'm now slightly addicted. And it's a really fun thing to play with people's stereotypes as well, because 
look at a woman in a wheelchair and you kind of don't think of her as a kind of there's lots of things you don't think about women in wheelchairs and I, I kind of like playing with those stereotypes people are often surprised by the kind of the, the way I've decorated my skin um because yeah. on, on the scar on your back I read somewhere which again is something I find really interesting is is you either is is you kind of you've had the tattoo around it to one day depending on how you're feeling celebrate your scars or hide your scars so it kind of has a dual purpose. And 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 do you feel though that the more the more time the more often than not you're celebrating your scar? I would say I think I've got uh, yeah, for sure. I mean that's the thing, isn't it? With with tattoos and when you live in a body that's been damaged, you're covered in scars anyway. I mean, I'm covered in them. And I've always just been like, well, that's just what happens. So to take control of that and say, actually, I'm just, I'm just going to make them, I'm going to make them stand out or I'm going to hide them or I'm going to make them prettier or I'm going to make them, you know, I'm just going to uh, sort of redefine them in a sense for me. I think that's, that's kind of what happens, isn't it? I, I, I don't know. I haven't spent much time talking to other people about their motivations, but for the few people that I've met, like you say, that have got scars, there's something really powerful about taking control over them. And, and especially when they tell a story, those scars tell a story. It's nicer the story my tattoos tell than my, than my actual stories tell. Yeah, do you, find, do you find that people are quite inquisitive then about your tattoos? Or do you find they're inquisitive more about your tattoos because you're in a wheelchair or because you're a woman? So you stereotypically break so many molds <laughs> that that actually intrigues them more to ask you. For sure. I mean, so I've recently got on my thigh a very large tattoo of, well, it's not very large, it's a significant tattoo of Frida Kahlo, an artist who I love, who very much, like me, sort of spoke to her reality of living as a woman with a disability. I love her. And I've got that on my thigh. And that opens a lot of questions because it's so visible. A lot of my tattoos are behind often behind my clothes, you know, I've got a lot on my back and so they're not visible, but this one's much the most visible one I've had. And it's so interesting, the questions that I get. It's definitely not so much about the tattoo, but more about, did it hurt? Can you feel that? Why did you get, you know, it's definitely a a conversation starter, which delights me, I think. I, I like, I love that kind of, it's nice to be looked at for a different reason than the wheelchair. It's always like, I, I kind of like that. It's nice to sort of break that, break down that barrier with a different conversation, not what happened to you, but wow, why have you got tattoos like that? It's, it's, that's a nice way to, to broker a new conversation with someone. Yeah, so with, with, the, with the tattoo that you have of, of Frida, what is it, you said, you know, you feel like some kind of, I suppose, similarity connection. Do you take inspiration from somebody like that? And do you have, do you have her visible for a reason that you feel that like she's very much somebody you want to be connected with and also maybe visible that you, when you look at her on your leg, you get a sense of inspiration every day as well for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So the reason, so I've, I've, I found getting tattoos in specific places quite an interesting conversation. So when I got my mandala over my scar, there, I, I knew it needed to be that place but the next one I got I was quite unsure where I wanted it what I wanted was a, a mermaid a quite big mermaid because I live in what I love being in the water but I can't walk so it's a sort of play on that kind of idea of being a mermaid I just love the symbology and this and the meanings behind the mermaids so I went to Syrah Hunjan again the tattooist who'd done my top tattoo and I said look I want to get this mermaid but I'm not sure where to get it and she immediately said 
that it should be on your back. She said it to me because that's my sort of inner inner self. It's very, it's kind of personal. It should be behind me. It's for it's it's not to be seen in a sense. It's a sort of alter ego that's quite private which I love the idea about because the next tattoo I got was Frida Kahlo and she's deliberately on the front of me because I'm in a place that I can see every day on my thigh. So the reason I put this woman there is because she's, she's an artist. She's a painter from Mexico and she painted a lot about her life as a woman with a disability. And she's just hardcore. She is, she's badass. She's she don't mess with someone like Frida Kahlo. Her work is so powerful and she's so strong. Uh, she spoke to me hugely as a woman with a disability. When I when I found her work, I just related so much. And I wanted to put her on the front of my body as a way of sort of, in a way, a bit of a protection symbol, but also a sort of reminder to myself every time I look at her, what would Frida do? That kind of question. She's she's really inspiring for me. So that's why she's so visible to me right there. She might as well be in my hand. You know, she's right on my leg, right where I see every day. Um, and the next tattoo I'm going to get is going to be positioned in the same, in the, on the opposite side, again, in a, in a front facing, facing position because it's protective. I'm going to get a wolf, uh, quite a strong she wolf. And so I like that kind of playing with the positioning um, of tattoos and that, yeah, that's why I keep her, keep her in my eye line. <laughs> when you say a she wolf, What's the difference between a she-wolf to a wolf? So wolves really fascinate me as a, as a species. As a, I've just read the most wonderful book. I've reread it for the third time. It's called Women Who Run With The Wolves. And it's about women who connect with their wild self, with their untamable dominance, the kind of strength of the female as a symbol. And the wolf embodies many of the same characteristics as a wild woman. And I just love, I love those stories about, uh, about wolves in particular and about how they work in a pack, how they live their lives. And she-wolves in particular are just fierce as anything. And I love that as a very sort of, as a metaphor for just the strength that I have in, I've built over the years, the resilience that I've grown and found out about myself. I, I feel strong. And I don't know particularly if the, if the female wolf is much stronger than a, a male wolf, but I do know I identify with the female being a female myself. And so I just, that's why I've got, I want to get the she-wolf on my leg. So I'm really looking forward to that because that's another two fierce symbols right on my thighs, my female, the artist in me, and then this animalistic female nature symbolic of the wolf on the other thigh. So like a shield. <laughs> there's this, when I speak to you, there's this kind of overriding like fierceness, like that. That's when you when you said the wolf. I can understand it, but fierceness is in in passion. But do you feel because of the work you do now, because you're so visible, um, whether it be through presenting, whether it be um, through advocacy, do you feel that there's a perception, or do you feel sometimes there's a pressure or a need that maybe you should tame yourself or you should be tamed because because again, a presenting, being on television. As, as you said before, you know, the stigma maybe that comes with tattooing, that comes with being a woman with tattoos, a woman with tattoos in wheelchair. Do you feel there's a need or an expectancy to be tamed? And, and would you go with it if it meant, you know, being able to continue something that you, you're very good and very proud about doing as well? It's a fab question, Gareth. So I, for people that don't know me, I, I work on the Paralympics. I present live most para sport for channel four i also make documentaries i do dispatches and unreported world current affairs documentaries i've done 
a range of different programs on Channel 4 primarily, either with disability focus or just nothing to do with disability. But as a presenter, especially in the sports world, I've always been under the impression that I have to be very presentable. You know, my hair needs to be perfect. My makeup needs to be spot on. Your clothes need to be tight and bright and everything needs to be this and this, which is very against who I am as a person. I'm a messy, naughty, badly behaved, wild person. But then there's the wheelchair and the wheelchair that works with that. So there's lots of there's lots of pigeonholing in my life. There's the sort of the TV presenter and the, and the shiny, you know, veneered presenter look. Then there's the sort of the wheelchair girl that's sort of a bit vulnerable. And, and these are all perceptions, you know, these aren't real. These are the, the, the stereotypes, the tropes that go with being a wheelchair user that, you know, you're kind of a bit meek, kind of a bit whatever. I don't know the words that people have in their minds, but they're definitely not the words that I like to associate with myself, which is that sort of more natural and happy and free and uninhibited and dare I say it untamable person so I yeah there's definitely a pressure to to look a certain way and I don't I don't have tattoos on show but I really want to change that you know I think that's I see a lot of men on tv with presenters with tattoos I don't see a lot of women with tattoos and I don't think that no one's ever said to me implicitly you cannot have tattoos on this show but it's been implied. So I kind of, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens when I do start branching out and I'm going to get sleeves and I'm going to get tattoos in more places. How that response comes, you know, in my work and in my advocacy, because I do try and sit in high places to speak on behalf of disabled people. I've spoken at the UN, for example. How would I feel about being tattooed or how would others feel about being t- me being tattooed and speaking in those spaces? It's a, it's a really f- interesting juxtaposition I guess of all these different roles that we think we can play and what those roles look like but I'm not I don't really don't want to adhere to them I really want to break them down and change them so that's kind of my next step I think yeah because I believe see something that makes a great advocate is somebody who refuses to sit in the pigeonhole that everybody thinks they should sit in because for instance I think with you what I found powerful really really powerful is uh, like I have a lot of I have a lot of friends who have a disability I speak to a lot of people whether it be they be Paralympians and what they are trying to do and I think this is something that actually I think you know I don't want to be wrong on this so tell me if I am wrong if they're trying to prove their ability over their disability and I think what you're doing is you're accepting your disability Ability and saying, actually, you know what, I do have a disability and I want to create better environments for people with disabilities rather than us all pretending that everybody's got abilities over disabilities and all of a sudden hiding the fact that they have disability. Am I, am I, am I right? Spot on. You're yeah. spot on, mate. I, I, I think this is something that I really want to address more and more in my work is this thing that when you see these wonderful Paralympians doing what they're doing and hats off, they are extraordinary people and I am proud to sit amongst them when I do my work with them as a broadcaster it's a privilege but at the same time there's a rhetoric there's a perception that disabled people overcome their disabilities that they don't live like with I'm not disabled many people reject that word even in itself they they don't want to be considered disabled and I get that and it's all about playing with that word and playing with the definition of it but for me because I recognize that there's actually a, a, a real ableism there that people are not willing to accept themselves as they are and they're trying to fit into the 
able body or the non-disabled world, despite having their impairment, you can do harm to yourself. There's, there's, there's problems there. I think it could be problematic if you don't really allow yourself to live in the body that you're in. And that's my, what my, my mission is, is to accept this body as I'm in. It fights against everything I know to be true about myself, but accept it and live with it and own it. And that power comes in knowing I am desert disabled. I am different. I have a spinal injury. There's nothing I can do about that. And this is what makes me who I am. I'm actually surprisingly comfortable with saying, I, I don't know if I would ever have changed my life. I love that this has happened to me because it's given me that perspective. But yeah, I think that those traps that we sit in between the trope traps of being overcoming your disability or being a vulnerable victim to it, I don't think that's healthy. There's something in the middle of those two polarities that is where I would like to sit. Yeah, so I just want to pick up some of what you said then because it's a question that I get asked all the time as well. I find what I love about you, Sophie, is there's so, much, there's so many things you're saying that I'm inspired by because, because I live by as well. Like, I feel like we have serious similarities. And I get asked the question, like, all the time is, if you could do anything different in your life, what would it be? And everybody seems to, everybody, all the time, all the time. And I, I, I've, one, I think it's quite, you know, it's quite an optimistic question because the reality is it's an impossibility to change anything anyway. So why, you know, why, why bother wasting time on that? But people get intrigued when I say, do you know what? I've done a lot of things that I'm embarrassed about, a lot of things I regret, but actually I would change nothing because I wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't do or have them negative things that other people perceive to be negative. So do you think the same? I, I'm, I'm sure you know, people would ask you about that, the, the, the obvious moment in your life in, in the crash. Like, you know, I'm sure you get asked all the time, like, would you change that moment? And it just feels like you've gone down a road that you never expected to go down only to maybe find out that that's the road to the destiny to who the authentic, real Sophie Morgan is. Do you feel that? You couldn't have put, you took the words out of my mouth, Gareth. It's a hard thing for people to understand. I get it. When, if you'd said to me as an 18-year-old girl, you're going to get paralysed next week in a car crash and you're going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of your life, God knows what I would have done. I don't, know, I don't think I would have wanted that reality. But you say it to me now and I kind of think it's it's extraordinary that I I just can't imagine my life without it. And I love where I've got to. There's something really hard for people to understand that if you aren't perfect, if you aren't all of the things that people aspire to be, then and you accept it. People think you're in denial. They kind of just think, nah, she's pretending. Of course she wants to be able bodied. Of course she wants to be all those things. But the truth is all of the lessons that I've learned from being this way I would never have had if I hadn't had my injury. And these lessons are fundamental to life. And I love that I've been asked the question and I've been able to answer it. I know what gratitude feels like. I know what joy is. I know what love is. I know what family is. I don't think I would have known that as intensely if I hadn't had my injury. And they are the core joys of life. I mean, I know sadness, I know tragedy, and I know pain. But you can't have one without the other. It's the light and the dark. And I, 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 love, I do love having both. But I will admit still that it's not always I'm happy and everything's great. It's not like that. It's just, it's life. It's, it, it, it's just life lived in an extreme way. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And also I think, you know, back to the, the kind of tattooing, it's, it's your life, you, you have a story that you, you're also proud 
proud to show now through your through your tattooing. So do you have so the the big bold piece on the back? You have Frida on the leg. You have your four dots of your representative of your your best friends. Do you have any more quite symbolic? Tattoos that you wanna you wanna share the the story behind? I uh, yeah so so I've got the mermaid which is all about my sort of inner self and my it's very personal she's like an Indian little goddess I've, underneath her I've sat her on some really lovely flowers and lilies and they sit all along the back at bottom of my back on the top of my bum and they swing round to Frida and there's water in all of that so the so really the the mermaid sits on the water and on the flowers and it's a really beautiful bed for her to sit on and water comes around and then there's Frida. Other than that, I've got a couple of other little ones. One is a line. I just got a line with an ex-partner of mine and the line was literally just to sort of say, you know where the line is or don't, we always overstep the line. There's just, there was just a kind of like, don't forget where the line is, you know, that was a kind of memory of that. There was a really simple, funny one that we got one time when we were on holiday and we were just being silly. I've also got a, triangle on my finger which again is for another set of friends really special friends for me and i think that's all of them i'm sure yeah, yeah i think that's all of them I tell, one thing I, I i was reading on uh, on about things you've done so you've done so many like things mm-hmm. and one thing i think again it's aligned to stigma to tattooing and, I, and and what i kind of read is that i don't think you enjoyed the process as much was when you did, they had a certain amount of disabled people doing, becoming models or, or like winning kind of the, the, the model, the model thing. And how, how did you find out with kind of the perception again, then of, you know, if, if somebody says, and it's stereotypically normal, people say, you know, imagine straight away in your head, a model, then you'd imagine somebody walking down, down, down a catwalk. So being in a wheelchair, being a model is, is, is again, like the kind of this flip on, on what we accept to be normal or not normal. So how did you, how did you enjoy that process? Or, or I don't know, was it something that you found was something you could connect with? No, it's a funny one, that one, because basically after my injury and I was sort of working out what to do with my life, I was only 18. So I was, a, I had a blank canvas ahead of me and I went to study painting. I went to study art which is my major love of my life is painting. And I started studying, but a number of things then sort of started to go wrong. Secondary complications of my injury. And then, then I got invited to do some TV work, which was unexpected. I never imagined myself getting into TV work, but I went and did a expedition with the BBC, which took me from one side of Nicaragua to the other side of Nicaragua over a month with a group of disabled people, which was like a baptism of fire. It was absolutely crazy. Can't believe I did it. But I did that. And that kind of opened the door to doing more TV. And about, so after I got back from the jungle, after Nicaragua, unfortunately, I had a stint of time where I had to be on bed rest for pretty much three years. I was lying on my stomach for health reasons. It was really a horrible experience through the three years of, of bed rest. And when I got off the other end of it, I was just desperate to do anything in life I was itching to keep going you know I was just I've been confined for so long that I was really um hungry for life anyway this got this phone call from the BBC saying we're doing a show about models about disabled models do you want to be in it and I was like yeah right I've (laughs) never given it a second thought I'm not into fashion I'm not really into models or makeup or any of that stuff I just thought this is really interesting I've never thought about that okay let's do it so I fell into the show (laughs) which was a BBC Three show uh, called Britain's Missing Top Model. And it was a competition for disabled girls 
to win a modeling contract and a, and a cover and a shoot with, with a photographer and stuff. But it was, it was a really weird experience for many reasons. One is I wasn't really particularly comfortable modeling. The other was how do you do a modeling competition with visible and invisible disabilities? It felt a bit like the playing field wasn't very level. I came off the other end of it, Gareth, really incensed with the lack of representation of disabled people. And I hadn't realised how much I wanted a role model, not just a model, but like women like me on TV, women like me doing anything. There wasn't really at that time. This was before the Paralympics. This was years back. And I really missed that. So I kind of thought, right, well, if there isn't one, I'll try and be one. I'll be that person, which is kind of what led me down some pretty weird paths, you know, into modelling. I did some modelling for Stella McCartney and Adidas and stuff. It was kind of fun, but it wasn't. I love the way you say that. It's just so random. I did some modeling for Stella McCartney. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a bit, you know, it's not really, it's a bit incongruent. It's not really who I wanted to be, but I kind of, when you, when you're disabled, you kind of pick a problem, any problem and go for it because there's so many issues. And that my, my energy got really focused on fashion, retail, changing the conversation around representation. And then that's when I moved into TV as a presenter. And now my work's much more about, representation on television and again it's just all about visibility and increasing awareness around people with disabilities it's, it's kind of become my thing so yeah I, I but I also think it's something that you, like I, I found and I think something that it connects to like the high street to modeling to ability versus disability through awareness is that you created what I thought and I'd never seen it before and maybe I've seen it but I've never looked enough to see it was I wrote it down but is the is is it a manic 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 will? I think it's phenomenal. It's just a but it's just this raising the visual awareness of normalizing being in a wheelchair. Do you want yeah. to describe what it is? So I I was sitting in a shop on my own, age nineteen or whatever it was. No, a bit later, maybe my early twenties. And I was looking at around the shop, this particular retailer on Oxford Street in London, and I was like, where's where's anyone that looks like me? I, I mean. I'm here, I'm spending money. Why am I not being marketed to? I thought that was a bit wrong. And I started doing some research into sort of the, the spending power and the spending, the, the, the demographic of people like me. And it turned out that we have an enormous spending power, disabled people. It's called the purple pound. You know, you can equate it to things like the pink pound or the gray pound of other demographics. But for us, we have this purple pound. And it's vast. It's vast. There's millions, billions being untapped. and so I thought, well, this is a way here to get retailers to actually change their mind, be more inclusive, not just because it's a nice thing to do, but because it's a, se- a sensible business move. It's a clever move. It's a financial win. So I basically decided I needed to do something and I had no skills, no idea what to do. So I did what I do best as I drew stuff and I ended up drawing a mannequin wheelchair. Then I got that manufactured and I got it into the shops. And my intention really was to use that as a stimulus, as a sort of conversation starter to say, right, Oh yeah, look, there's your window display, which is meant to be representative of every customer that comes through the door. Oh no, you've got a wheelchair in it. That's cool. What's that about? Have you done more? Have you just trained your staff to be disability aware? Have you made it easier for people to get jobs here? Have you made it inclusive? Is there steps removed? Are there wheelchair toilets and disabled toilets, sorry, and spaces that are larger? Have you got hearing loops ingrained? All the things that people with disabilities need. And so that's kind of where it started. And I've gone on from then to consult with lots of retailers all around the world, actually, to, to sort of help them think about how to be better and do better. And it's fun. It's fun because... Again, it's about breaking down those stereotypes. Yeah, and, and again, another, I think, well, I don't think this is so much a stereotype, but something that surprised me, well, it doesn't, I, to be honest with you, I haven't spoken to you for the last hour, so if I don't think anything could surprise me, <laughs> uh, really, um, I, is, is that, you know, you, 
whether you embrace it or not, you had a terrible car accident, yet you still strive and are passionate about cars, about, you know, being yeah. in cars, being in fast cars, about, about one, creating better access vehicles and stuff for people who are disabled. But I kind of found it quite striking mm-hmm. that you're still passionate about wanting to get in cars. I know. People say that to me. They're like, how did you not get scared? And I think that, you know, people say it's not guns that are lethal, it's the people. It's that kind of attitude. I just think the right person behind the wheel with the right mindset, you're safe. So I've, I, and I, because of my injury, I kind of thought I'm never going to say, make the same mistakes twice. So I trust myself behind the wheel. And for me, it's very liberating to get out of my chair, get in a vehicle that can take me places that my body can't. And recently I got a motorbike, an adapted trike, which I honestly, it's the biggest game changer. It's the most amazing, amazing piece of kit. It's a 900cc three-wheeled bike, which is made by a company called BRP in in Canada. They make jet skis and skidoos and stuff. And they made this on-road amazing trike and it's called a Riker. And I honestly, I live on it. I love it. It's the coolest thing I've ever had. It's so fast, so fun, so liberating. Put my helmet on and just disappear. It's just the best ever. I was meant to be driving it around the world this year with Channel 4, but that got COVID cancelled. So that's been parked. But fingers crossed next year, I'll be out on it again, doing something crazy, something fun. Wow. Right. Okay. I'm going to start rounding up now as much as I don't want to. I just want to ask probably three more questions, right? I just want to say out of all the documentaries and the raising the awareness that you've been a part of, what do you feel has been the one that has been the most powerful, but probably more importantly, has created the greatest change. Being part of the Paralympics, broadcasting the Paralympics in 2016, live from Rio, was a personal highlight. But professionally, and with my advocacy hat on, it was a game changer. It was fantastic to be a part of that conversation, shifting the narrative around disability. So that was a huge moment. Yeah, cool. All right. And the, and the final two, I'd probably put these two questions into one, so it's easier for you to answer. I think as an advocate, as you are, what would be your advice to disabled people kind of maybe unable to deal with it in the way that you have dealt with it right now? But also, what would be your advice to non-disabled people about creating an environment where disabled people don't feel like they looked at twice or don't feel like they're categorized or put into some kind of pigeonhole? So the last question, to your last question, one of the jobs that I feel most passionate about is encouraging people around me to be allies to disabled people. Because a lot of the time the pressure is put on us to fight for what we need and what we want and to fight for equality. But much in the same way we've seen with, say, Black Lives Matter and being an ally is so integral to the overall integration of every kind of person. We all need to work together. And so I, I... I really would ask, firstly, for everyone who's listening who's not disabled, who doesn't identify as disabled, to think about how what they can do better to help people like us live a better life, you know, try and challenge their own misunderstandings and unlearn the things that they've had to learn. And I get that they've learned, right? Because I, I get that. I, I came into my disabled life with all the prejudice about disability that many others do because I didn't know disabled people. So I, it's taken me a long time to unlearn what it means to be disabled. And I love to encourage other people to unlearn their own 
think, you know, their own ways of thinking around what disability is and what it means. And my advice to anyone ever, anywhere, disabled or non-disabled of any age, is always the best thing that you can ever do for your life is focus on what you can do. All the things that you can do. Try at your hardest to not think about the things you can't do, because that's what will ultimately just bring you down. So, yeah, I think that's it. And and I guess this is a harder one to say, but if you're in my situation and you're struggling, reach out for others like me who have been through there, have walked the path before you, because there are many of us out there. And that's the joy of social media. That's the joy of the world we live in, which today, you know, the, the world in which we live today, because before that didn't always used to happen. You might have felt quite isolated, but now there's a community out there. So tap into it and yeah, we can all help each other. Yeah, I also think it's really, I think I, for me to say, I think it's also really important that you, Sophie, realise that you are not just an inspiration for disabled people. Is that, is that you, you I, I believe that you transcend that. Um, I, from this last hour, can 100% guarantee you that, that you transcend being an advocate for ability versus non-disability, however you want to word it, because I think anybody in any form of of, of protected characteristic that's struggling could take and and will definitely from this take a lot of a lot of strength a lot of strength I know I have well thank I know you. I have yeah I really appreciate that and I have to say I feel the same way about you as a, as a role model as an individual the way that you live your life the values that you embody you're a hero too so thank you so much for talking with me uh, do you know what genuinely I like this has been the, this is the last this is the last one of this series and I don't think we could have signed it off better. I'm not <laughs> I swear, I swear. I, I just I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Yeah, it's great <laughs> to say that. Um, and I really hope, I really hope I can be quite a bit of a recluse sometimes, right? I love my own little space and I love locking myself away. But I really hope that one day we get to meet face to face. I, love I that. really I hope love that. that. Let's get I a tattoo. Why not? Oh yes, I look know. out. <laughs> don't say that don't say that like on skin deep or it will have to happen let me tell oh, you there you go i put it down i put that yeah. down the gauntlet <laughs> great <laughs> stuff sophie you have a fantastic day thank and thank you, you so so much thank you God bless thank you again for listening if you like the show then please go ahead and rate review and subscribe it means you'll never miss an episode and will help other people find us I want to say a big thank you to any of the tattoo community supporting this podcast. Please do help us spread the word. Now that's it from me. Well, at least until next time. And finally, a closing thank you to the partners of today's episode, Keels. Now, for all the bearded men out there, I'd recommend checking out their grooming solution, Nourishing Beard Oil, a lightweight beard oil that smooths facial hair and nourishes skin underneath. Their products are great, but what I love just as much is their philanthropic initiatives, including their partnership with Just Like Us. Just Like Us is a leading LGBTQ charity that was founded to support young people in the UK by eliminating homophobic, biphobic, and transphobic bullying in schools. Check out the brand and all the amazing things they are doing by visiting keels.co.uk.